Summer 1981. The world is full of bad news. The new president, Ronald Reagan, has just narrowly survived an assassination attempt. In St. Peter's Square in Rome, another assassination attempt has severely wounded Pope John Paul II. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting that a strange cancer-like disease is affecting gay men. So, what do Americans do to escape the news? What they've always done in times of stress. They crowd into movie theaters to catch the latest comedy. And this summer, that movie is The Cannonball Run, a high-speed caper about a car race across the country. The movie opens with one of the coolest car scenes ever filmed. Police cars are chasing a wild-looking Batmobile of a vehicle driven by two beautiful women in skin-tight neon Lycra bodysuits. Why save the cop chase scene for the middle of the movie? The Lamborghini shoots into action even before the opening credits. The scream of the engine, the speed of the car rocketing across the screen. To top it all off, the movie has the most star-studded cast of the year. Burt Reynolds, Farrah Fawcett, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin, among others. But for car fans, the film's real star is the Lamborghini. The car model is named Countach. First unveiled in 1970, it soon became a pop culture icon. All across America, countless teenage boys tacked posters of the Countach to their bedroom walls. With its long, sleek lines, it's a pinup if there ever was one. The car doors open straight upward rather than out from the side, so-called Lamborghini scissor doors. People stop in their tracks just seeing someone getting in or out of this car. To this day, car aficionados invariably say the Countach is the most outrageous customer car ever to hit the road. It is the stairway to heaven of supercars. And in Italy, it is the ultimate weapon in Lamborghini's white-hot rivalry with Ferrari's red cars. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. Before introducing the Countach, Lamborghini is known for the Miura, a stunning automobile by all accounts. Trouble is, Lamborghini can barely build more than a hundred a year. The company is just too small to make more of them. And the founder, Ferruccio Lamborghini, is desperate to take the company to the next level. This is episode two, Lamborghini spawns an icon. It is 1970. Ferruccio wants to compete with Enzo Ferrari, and the only way to do that is to create an even bigger sensation than anything in the Ferrari lineup. So, he starts with the man who designed the Mura's stylish body, Marcello Gandini of the Italian design studio Bertoni, known for designing some very famous Ferraris. By most accounts, the partnership between Lamborghini and Gandini began with a meeting at Lamborghini's factory outside Bologna, Ferruccio has a special request. Signor Gandini, 
I would like you to design me a car unlike anything the world has ever seen. Something you just can't take your eyes off of. My engineers can put an engine in that'll make it the fastest customer car in history. It's a tall order. Maybe even impossible. But it's what Gandini sets out to do. Engineers at the factory are designing the base frame of the car with a badass V12 engine. Meanwhile, Gandini works late nights in his studio, drawing one design after another. Still, nothing quite matches his imagination. I am so exhausted. Uh, Will this car ever get completed? A colleague from Piemonte yells out in sympathy. Kuntash! In the worker's local dialect, the phrase means something like plague or contagion an expression of frustration over the design challenges. At first, the name Kuntash sticks to the car as a joke, but soon, it's no joke. That is the name. The public outside of Italy probably has no clue what the word means, but the car is such a looker. Well, it doesn't really matter. The term Kuntash is about to become a legend in the motoring world for generations to come. It is 1971. Crowds at the Geneva Auto Show are gathered around the Countach, smitten. It looks more like a spaceship than a car. It stands only about three and a half feet high, with hugely muscular hips and a tapered front end that makes the car look like an axe blade when it is driving forward. There are no bumpers or side mirrors that would hamper aerodynamics. The car has the wide stance and low center of gravity of a race car. The scissor doors are showstoppers. They scream audacity. Back at the factory, though, Perucho Lamborghini is concerned. So far, his team has only built a prototype. He meets with his engineers as they inspect the car. Perucho tells his engineers he wants to build more luxurious and comfortable cars. But this car is anything but comfortable. You have to contort yourself just to get in it. He's nervous about putting a car like this into assembly line production. One screw-up could easily destroy this fledgling company. But the engineers don't want to hear it. They want to build this car. Finally, Ferruccio makes a fateful bet. Okay, here's the deal. I want you to drive to a race in Sicily in this car. That's hundreds of kilometers away, over wretched roads full of potholes... If this prototype can make the trip there and back, I'll put it into production. So off they go. The car makes it back in one piece. True to his word, Ferruccio approves production. The first customer Countach is sold to a rich Australian in 1974. Soon, others follow. It is such a shocker, so powerful and so unprecedented that the American news show 60 Minutes devotes a whole segment to the enigmatic Ferruccio Lamborghini. If there is one consuming passion in this country, it is with cars. If there is one consuming passion in Italy, it is with cars. If there is truly a dream car to satisfy those passions, the name it bears is this, Lamborghini. And the Countach itself? It remains today the fastest production car available. 180, even 195 miles an hour. And about the most expensive, about $120,000. Countach makes Lamborghini a household name, especially in America. 
there is only one problem. The car gets under 10 miles per gallon. And, right when the production Countach goes on sale, almost exactly, in fact, the unexpected happens. It is October 1973. In the Middle East, the Yom Kippur War is raging. On October 12th, President Richard Nixon orders a strategic airlift to deliver weapons and supplies to the Israelis. In response, Arab nations announce an oil embargo. Suddenly, the price of oil on the world market skyrockets. Seemingly overnight, the passion for gas-guzzling supercars hits a steep curb, even among those who could afford a luxury car. The oil crisis knocks the wind out of Lamborghini. In his office, Ferruccio meets with his financial advisors. They tell him he's overextended. They don't have to spell out what he must do. With a mournful look, he tells them, I have no choice. I must sell the company. Ferruccio sells a controlling interest in his company to a Swiss billionaire so the company can stay alive. Ferruccio remains in charge, but Lamborghini's long-term survival is now in question. Production of the Countach continues, but just barely. At the Ferrari factory some 20 miles away, Enzo Ferrari has just gotten the inside track. Enzo is uniquely situated to ride out the oil crisis. Just before the crisis hits, by complete coincidence, he meets with Gioni Agnelli, the richest man in Italy and a world-renowned playboy. Agnelli owns the carmaker Fiat, Italy's most powerful company. And he has a proposition. Signor Ferrari, you're a genius with cars, but you're terrible with money. All I count about is racing. I make pretty cars for rich people. And what they pay for my cars allows me to bring honor to Italy on the racetrack. Agnelli makes an offer to buy 90% of Ferrari's company for billions of lira. Too much money for Enzo to turn down. So Enzo and Ferruccio are saved by companies with deep pockets that are willing to let both men remain in the driver's seat. And to continue to compete. Enzo is flush with cash for research and development. Ferrari has strong infrastructure and enough cash reserves to power forward during the financial crisis. He begins quietly manufacturing the Dino 206, a gorgeous mid-engine customer car Ferrari names after his son who passed away in 1956, and the 365 GTB 4 Daytona, a two-seat car with a long phallic nose and a short rear deck. The Daytona gets Hollywood's attention, namely a starring role in the first two seasons of the TV show Miami Vice. The Daytona goes down as one of the most coveted Ferraris of the 1970s. By the early 1970s, Ferrari is making more than a thousand customer cars a year, far more than Lamborghini, which can only cough up a few hundred. And more importantly, Ferrari is starting to gain traction on the racetrack. Throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, British racing teams have controlled the Formula One World Championship. That is about to change. September 7, 1976, at Ferrari's home track, Monza, a young driver is about to become a superstar. Nicky Lauda needs just half a point to nab the championship for Ferrari, 
And he's got the boost of a hometown crowd at Italy's most famous racetrack. Lauda places third, but he wins enough points to capture the title. Reclusive Enzo Ferrari remains at home, watching the celebration on his television set. All of Italy is swept up in the moment. Ferrari is once again the indisputable king of the road. Less than a year later, Lauda would crash and nearly die behind the wheel of a Formula One Ferrari. In the past, an accident of this magnitude would stall production at Ferrari, but now it registers as little more than a speed bump on Ferrari's road to domination. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, Ferrari and Lamborghini continue to battle out their rivalry, each trying to outdo the other with faster, more beautiful and audacious vehicles. Lambo remains barely financially viable as it turns out the Countach in ever faster and more outrageous versions. The Countach Turbo, the Quattro Valvole. Lambo also releases the Yalpa in 1981. Only 410 would be built and a bizarre off-road truck called the LM002 of which only 328 would be built. The vehicles continue to spread the gospel of Ferruccio Lamborghini around the globe but none of them is financially successful. Ferrari, meanwhile, debuts the fabulous Testarossa in 1984. The name means redhead in Italian. The Testarossa steals the Countach's crown as the world's fastest customer car. It can hit 180 miles per hour. Total Ferrari production reaches 3,000 cars by the mid-1980s. The two brands duke it out in popular culture, too, while Lamborghini makes a splash in the Cannonball Run in 1981 and in the sequel. The new Ferrari 308 gets a star turn in a popular new TV show about a private investigator named Magnum P.I. In 1986, another hit movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, places a vintage Ferrari in the limelight. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT, California. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love. It is his passion. It is his fault he didn't lock the garage. The road for both Ferrari and Lamborghini has been full of twists and turns. And Ferrari has the upper hand over the upstart Lambo. More profits, more racing fame. But both companies are about to veer in directions they could not possibly prepare for. Life and death, literally and figuratively, hang in the balance. Fasten your seatbelt as we enter the late 1980s. It is April 23, 1987. Lee Iacocca, an icon of the business world and the head of Chrysler Corporation, sits in his office in Detroit. Iacocca is 63 and has spent a lifetime in the auto industry. He is ambition incarnate. On this day, he will oversee one of the most surprising moves any auto company would make during the 1980s. Iacocca beams as his phone starts ringing off the hook. Is it true? Yep. 
It is. Chrysler Corporation has purchased Lamborghini outright for $25.2 million, the equivalent of $562 million today. Lamborghini is a small Italian company with 300 employees and almost no financial resources. But the little automaker's clout among gearheads is off the charts. Just the thing to add pizzazz to the reputation of Chrysler, maker of ugly minivans and the cheap K-cars that are swarming American roads. Later that day, Iacocca hosts reporters in his office to talk about the deal. As they scribble in their notepads, he tells them he will expand Lambo production. Chrysler intends to increase the minuscule production of the Countach to 500 or even 1,000 cars per year. If we weren't going to expand Lamborghini, we wouldn't have bought it. But not buy too much more because the market gets slim for $100,000 cars. For the first time in its history, Lamborghini is going to dive into racing. The company will develop a Formula One engine to take on Ferraris. Two months after the Chrysler Lambo deal is announced, Lamborghini makes a masterful move. It poaches one of the most prominent auto men in the Ferrari empire. Mauro Forgieri, who has run Ferrari's Formula One program for nearly 20 years, will leave Ferrari to help Lambo develop a racing program. The newspaper headlines scream rivalry. Chrysler to challenge Ferrari's supremacy. Bob Lutz, one of Chrysler's top executives, has this to say. Lamborghini never really had any money behind it, but with Chrysler's money, Lamborghini absolutely will become the new Ferrari. As part of its plan to take Lamborghini to the next level, Chrysler will need to help Lambo bring out a new model that can eclipse the company's iconic Countach. And that is a tall order. The car will have to be the fastest customer car in the world. Engineers and designers are hard at work, in Detroit and in Italy, and like all things Lamborghini, they move at breakneck speed. Shortly after the ink is dry on the Chrysler Lamborghini deal, Lee Iacocca is back in the Motor City at the Detroit Auto Show. Amidst all the new shiny machinery in the hall, at center stage is the new Lamborghini Diablo, which the public is about to see for the first time. Wearing a gray suit and tie and glasses, the white-haired Iacocca signals for an assistant to tear off the white sheet covering the car. This is a screamer. A red Lamborghini Diablo. I bet you'd order one on the spot if you could get on the waiting list. It's a big one and a long one. He builds even more hype from the Chrysler podium. I told him if Countach let them live their fantasies, Diablo would let them live fantasies they don't even know they have yet. Because you see, this is a zero to 60 car in four seconds. Four. The Diablo is as boldly styled as the Countach and is the first customer car from any brand that can crack the 200 mile per hour mark rear-wheel drive, a 5.7-liter V12 engine. This is the first Lambo with electronic fuel injection. These days, fuel injection is standard on almost all new cars, but at the time, this is exotic racing technology. Still, there is no power steering. This is a raw driver's car. Chrysler has added some lux to the Lamborghini's interior, a better radio, for example, the kinds of things American buyers care about. What is it like to drive this searing hot street rocket? Well, let's let one Lamborghini Diablo fan take us for a ride. Jay Leno. 
at 70, it barely turned in 2,500 RPM, so that's going to help the gas mileage a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, you know. It rides smoother than my Carrera GT. The Diablo is built to be a Ferrari killer, and it is the first step in turning Lamborghini into a full car company, like Ferrari, with a more robust lineup. During the same period that Chrysler takes over Lamborghini, surprising things are happening at the company's rival, Ferrari. And not all of them good. Enzo Ferrari is now 87, and he is still the spiritual center of his brand. Every day he is at his factory. When he first built it, there was nothing but empty fields here. Now, more than 40 years later, the whole region has been built out because of Ferrari. Thousands and thousands of people make pilgrimages to the factory gates every year in hopes of seeing Ferrari cars and to eat the famous risotto with sparkling red Lambrusco wine that Ferrari eats for lunch every day at the restaurant across the street from his factory, Il Cavallino, named after the Ferrari prancing horse. At one point, Ferrari offers a rare on-camera interview. He's sitting in his office, wearing his trademark sunglasses. A car to me is like a sun. When you think that the sun represents the continuity of ourselves, you bring him to school. And the day he succeeds in his studies, he's top of the class. You're proud of your son. It is what a maker accomplishes by transforming a shapeless matter into a living machine, into a harmony of sounds. In 1987... Ferrari unleashes his most high-performance car yet to celebrate his company's 40th anniversary. It is called the F40, and Ferrari claims it is the fastest, most powerful, and most expensive car in the world. Over 470 horsepower, $400,000, a top speed of over 200 miles per hour. The car hits at the right time. This is the late 80s, the era of Wall Street wealth, of cocaine and wild excess. Car fans who can afford the F40 are desperate to get one. Only a little more than 1,300 would be built over the course of its lifespan. When the car comes out, the Ferrari factory throws a party for Enzo and the 40th anniversary of his company. Dozens of past Formula One drivers and champions gather around to celebrate Il Commendatore, as Enzo is known. In appearance, he is the antithesis of his cars. A simple-looking man in a rumpled suit and tie, wearing sunglasses indoors. He is old, and there is a sense that the party is a funeral for a living man, which is exactly what it turns out to be. On August 14, 1988... Enzo Ferrari dies at 90 years old, spreading a dark cloud over the factory. Ferrari has lived such a reclusive life that even the details of his death remain a mystery. One might imagine a funeral in which celebrities would be pallbearers, but no such funeral occurs. Ferrari is quietly buried in a crypt at the San Cataldo Cemetery in his hometown in Modena. Four months after Ferrari's death, all eyes turn to the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, look at the crowd! Gerhard Berger, Ferrari's one and two here in the Italian Grand Prix as we come to the close of this race. What a dramatic development. So that puts in a fitting tribute, two red Ferraris place first and second. 
and hundreds of thousands of people all over Italy flood the streets to celebrate. It is the end of an era. This bubbly champagne moment is about to go flat fast. It is August 2nd, 1990. All over the world, people gather around their television to watch the shocking news coming out of the Middle East. Iraq has invaded the tiny oil-rich country of Kuwait. The immediate effect on the global economy is bad. Over the next few months, the price of oil goes from $17 a barrel to more than double that number, 36 bucks a barrel. Six months later, the United States goes to war. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. The spike in oil prices sparks a recession, and the market for supercars like Ferrari and Lamborghini suddenly freefalls. Without warning, 1980s excess gives way to an entirely new mood. The faucet of Wall Street money turns off. Fortunes dry up overnight. People are mad and broke. At the Ferrari factory in Italy, workers feel terribly lost. Production slows almost to a standstill. The year after Enzo Ferrari dies, production of cars is a little over 2,300, about half of the year before. At Lamborghini, the early 1990s recession hits even harder. The nascent racing program just disappears. In 1993, Ferruccio Lamborghini dies of a heart attack while vacationing in Perugia. The motivating force of the company's gone. A year later, Chrysler unloads the ailing car maker to a small car company called Megatech. Gloom descends on this region in Italy, once the noisy nirvana of automobiles. Few could imagine that the best days for both Ferrari and Lamborghini are yet to come. The ups and downs of this rivalry are like a roller coaster ride, but a new golden age is on the horizon. No one saw it coming. A new wave of hip hop wealth, reality TV money, and high fashion extravaganza is going to launch this rivalry straight to the stratosphere. The Kardashians, Ralph Lauren, LeBron James, more horsepower, more speed, more money, more celebrity. It's all coming up. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Simply tap or swipe over the cover art. And you'll see some offers from our sponsors, too. Please support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. You can also support us by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. And don't forget, tell us what business stories you'd like to hear. We would love to hear your thoughts. We should say something about the conversations you've been hearing. There's no way of knowing exactly what was said at the time, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. A.J. Bame wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Emily Frost edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, created by Hernan Lopez. 
for Wondering.